You're listening to Habitations. I'm Noah Sokol. My guest, Dale Jameson, is one of the most prominent philosophers today thinking about the ethics surrounding climate change, as well as what it means for our species to be entering the new epoch now known as the Anthropocene, a time when human beings are considered a dominant geological force that is altering the planet. Dale Jameson's 2014 book, which we spend most of our time discussing, is titled Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle Against Climate Change Failed and What It Means for Our Future. In the book, Jameson is clear to define himself not as a pessimist, but as a realist. He begins by acknowledging the scientific reality that we are now stuck with climate change and wants to provoke readers to think about what has led us to this point, how we may act moving forward to limit the extent of climate change, and just as importantly, how humans will continue to find and create meaning in a world that, quote, will be qualitatively different from the one that gave rise to humanity and all its creations. While the book carefully catalogs the many obstacles to human action on climate change, Jameson argues that perhaps the most significant obstacle to action can be found within the limitations of our own biology. Evolution has shaped humans to have cognitive and effective capacities that equip us to respond to the rapid movements of middle-sized objects, not to the slow buildup of insensible gases in the atmosphere. Jameson believes that climate change fundamentally challenges the common-sense morality that we evolved, and thus requires that we expand our ethical imaginations to deal with this unprecedented problem. Dale Jameson is the founder and chair of the Environmental Studies Department at NYU in New York, where he is a professor of philosophy and environmental studies. He is also affiliated professor of law at the NYU Law School and the director of the Animal Studies Initiative. Most recently, in 2015, Jameson co-wrote a book of fictional short stories with Bonnie Nadzim called Love in the Anthropocene, which is about how humans may find love and meaning in a future world where nature has become almost entirely an artifact. Dale Jameson, thank you for joining me. In your book, Reason in a Dark Time, you base the book on the premise that the human effort to prevent climate change has failed. So specifically in your book, what do you mean by that, that the human effort to prevent climate change has failed? In a way, what I mean uh, is something very, very simple, which is that climate change is already underway. It will continue for our lifetimes, at least, and probably centuries into the future. And we haven't even yet turned the corner on increasing carbon emissions each year. Every year since the Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed in 1992, carbon emissions have increased except for three years and in during in those years were primarily to be explained by economic serious global economic recession right but in the context of your book uh, you, you really focus on a kind of i think a 17-year period when you talk about our failure to prevent climate change and that was the period between 1992 at the rio earth summit and 2009 in copenhagen so can you describe for those who are not familiar what happened at each of those time points um, and what happened in between to lead to this failure? Right. So that period of 1992 to 2009 was an extremely ambitious and in many ways quite wonderful period in which the nations of the world tried to act collectively to address the problem of climate change. So in 1992 at the Rio Earth Summit, which was the largest gathering of heads of state ever collected on the planet, Every country in the world signed and ratified a treaty in which they said that they were jointly committed to stabilizing 
greenhouse gas in the atmosphere at a level that would not disrupt climate. And serious domestic actions were proposed in some countries. So, for example, in the United States, there was a, a bill introduced into the Senate with 15 co-sponsors that would have reduced U.S. greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by the year 2000. It failed, but it had serious bipartisan support. So this was kind of a magical period when people, including political leaders, really thought that they could act together and solve this problem. But what happened during that period, and we can discuss it in greater detail if you want, is that these attempts became increasingly feeble. The opposition, particularly in the United States to controlling carbon, became highly mobilized by the threat that there might actually be some turning our back on the fossil fuel industry, even if it would take a generation to do that. That's really what brought out climate change denial. That's really what turned climate change into a polarized political issue. And by the time we got to Copenhagen in 2009, there was sort of a collection of things. Now we were at the end of this process, but yet expectations were very high because Barack Obama had been elected president but there hadn't really been sufficient preparatory work that had gone into that meeting. Um, by now, a kind of middle-level group of countries, often called the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, had become very great emitters, and it was hard to know how to incorporate them into a system of binding emissions limits. And so the whole process really just ran out of gas at that, at that point. You describe that understanding what happened between those two conferences between 1992 and 2009 is our key to surviving the future. But if we failed to prevent climate change, then, then what do you mean that we need to understand what happened during that time to survive the future? So we really need a quite different frame in thinking about the human relationship to nature. So much of the environmental movement has been predicated on this idea that nature is something like a benign natural system and there are occasional spikes in the human threat to this benign natural system and on those occasions what we need to do is to mobilize to save nature and to avert the crisis and once we've done that then we can return to this natural equilibrium state in which all is well and all is uh, and all is healthy and if you look at the rhetoric surrounding climate change, even the rhetoric that continues to today, we're often trapped in this cycle of this is the last chance to protect nature from the ravages of climate change. Well, that's really not the challenge that we face. I mean, the, the, I mean nature is itself uh, an, un, a set of unstable and disequilibrium systems in which constant change is just part of the natural background. Human action can accentuate those changes in very dramatic and dangerous ways. But the challenge for humanity is really to live in some sense in accord with a nature which is intrinsically changing. And so the concepts that we need to think in terms of are, none of these are perfect concepts, but concepts of adaptation, concepts of resilience, concepts of uh, humility, concepts of limiting our impact on our perturbations of the planet. And we need to get away from this language of saving nature because 
first of all, nature is never going to be saved, and secondly, it doesn't need saving, certainly not by us. A big part of the beginning of your book is dedicated to the obstacles to action. Why climate change has been such an incredibly complex issue for human beings to deal with. So some of these issues I think probably a lot of listeners are more familiar with, such as organized denial um, by corporations, uh, general lack of knowledge by the public about science and policy, um, even lack of scientific knowledge about exactly how uh, the climate system works and how the various feedbacks that are involved work. Uh, But you also dig into some other obstacles to action that I think people think less about. What you describe as the most major obstacle to action is is actually inherent to our own biology and our own evolutionary uh, trajectory and how evolution has shaped us. So we are essentially savanna animals. We're the fourth great ape species. We are not halfway between animals and gods, as some would have it. We are very, very firmly ensconced in our own biologies. And our biologies allow us to do amazing things. So, for example, we, are, we have incredible visual acuity compared to many other land animals, for example. But we also have very, very severe limitations. Part of the problem with climate change in particular is that carbon dioxide is a colorless, tasteless, odorless gas that builds up in the atmosphere. If carbon dioxide presented itself to our sensory systems as something that stunk to high oven, was kind of a putrid yellow or green in color, we we probably would already be doing something about it. One thing I I thought was interesting is is that you commented on the the abilities that humans have um, that that are distinctive to humans, that are unique to humans, that that might give us an advantage to deal with something like climate change. And one of them is abstract thought. But you comment that we're not even that good at abstract thought. So I wanted to know what you meant by that and, and compare and compared to who are we not good at abstract thought? Well, we're certainly not good at abstract thought compared to um, machines that we program to be good at abstract thought, which is part of why uh, artificial intelligence will be something that will loom ever larger in our, in our lives. Um, I'm so, so when I say we're not good at abstract thinking, I'm not comparing us to other animals. I'm comparing us to what we can imagine in terms of virtual or artificial forms of life. The problem is that if we go back in the philosophical tradition, so Aristotle defined homo sapiens, humans, as rational animals. And he was impressed by the fact that we could actually perform simple instances of of syllogistic thought in a way that he thought other animals couldn't. Now, whatever the truth of the capacities of other animals, one thing that's become increasingly clear from cognitive psychology and from social psychology is that our rationality is quite bounded. That rather than being able to think clearly and generally and abstractly, even our ability to make simple inferences tends to depend enormously on what those inferences are about and how they're framed and on what the circumstances are in which we're doing the thinking. So, our, so the way to think about our capacity for rationality is in the same way that we think about our capacity for sensory perception. It's tuned to the environment. 
and in some ways our ability to do sensory perception is extremely good. So our visual systems are much better than the visual systems of some other animals because we needed to evolve those visual systems to deal with the sources of food that we needed to get when we were on the savanna. But our sense of smell, for example, is hugely inferior to dogs or rabbits or many other animals because we're not so dependent on that for our, for our survival. Similarly, we are as rational as we needed to be to survive those challenges. But that doesn't mean that we're just universally rational or that we're as rational as we need to be to survive in a world of nuclear weapons or a world of climate change. Those were not the demands that produced the human ability to reason. You argue that the, the reason to act on climate change has to inherently be an ethical one. And I wanna talk about some of the reasons why climate change has, has been so intractable to act on ethically, some of the ways it really pushes at the seams of what we understand as our individual moral responsibility. Um, so you discuss this in terms of this phrase you use in your book, common sense morality. Uh, so can you talk about how you describe that and maybe some of the inherent problems in, in using that phrase, common sense morality, before we go into some of the specific uh, issues themselves? So I think that often when we talk about morality, people are quite impressed by apparent differences that people have in their, in their moral systems. And it makes sense to be sensitive to those differences because those are the things that are important and that we have to negotiate on an everyday basis. But that focus tends to obscure the fact that most people, at least in the industrialized world, share a pretty deeply common moral outlook, which is still pretty well described by things like the Ten Commandments, which in different forms come up in all kinds of cultural traditions all over the world. Now, the Ten Commandments and its analog systems, its similar systems, really occurred in relatively small groups of people who needed to coordinate and regulate their behavior often under relatively hostile environmental conditions. And they didn't have to worry about things like what happens if millions of people all make tiny contributions in producing a common problem. They didn't have to worry so much about what happens if we don't take action. So there is an enormous bias against taking action that harms others rather than not taking action which might allow or contribute or make you complicit in some way, harming others. So what I mean by common sense morality is really this kind of inherited morality of much of, of much of humankind, which is again not unlike our inherited cognitive and perceptual abilities, that in tandem with our cognitive and psychological capacities has done an excellent job in allowing us to survive and even thrive uh, as humanity has grown in population and technological sophistication and so on. But we're now living in a period in which in some sense the same capacities, both moral and psychological and, and cognitive, um, uh, ha have become obstacles in actually trying to address the problems of our own creation. So let's go into some of those obstacles and, and let's explore them through so kind of discussing some of the issues that, that climate change poses that's really pushing at the, the, the seams of, of what we've been, what we have evolved 
to be able to think about and do. Can you talk a little bit about the, the temporal and spatial nature of climate change and how this challenges our sense of individual moral responsibility? So common sense morality holds us responsible for things that we, that we cause, harms that we cause. And those harms that we, are, that we view ourselves as causing are ones that are very close to us in time and space. So the paradigm, the best example of something that we cause that's wrong is somebody punching someone else in the face, right? You've got first this spatial connection. You have the fist of one person against the jaw of another. And you have this temporal connection, which is the throwing of the punch happens in a microsecond before the shattering of the jaw. That's the way that we think about causality. The problem with climate change and issues like climate change is that first of all, the effects of our emitting carbon are gonna be felt centuries, maybe millennia into the future. And secondly, people on the other side of the world are going to be affected by those emissions that happen you know, a half a hemisphere away. You have a really interesting analogy in your book uh, to to get at some of why these issues challenge our sense of individual more responsibility. So can you discuss your example of Jack stealing Jill's bike and the successive stages you take us through and how the how the intention or the act becomes increasingly separated from the effect? So if we start with a paradigm act that we think of as wrong. It would be something like Jack stealing Jill's bicycle. Um, Jack has these evil intentions. You know, he wants to take something that's not rightfully his. Jill is clearly the victim. She's lost her bicycle. Um, And we can locate the harm on sort of the place and the moment where Jack appropriates the bicycle for his own use. So this is a situation where Jack just goes and steals Jill's bike. That's right. Think of Jill as having the bicycle on the porch of her house, and she goes in, Jack sees this untended bicycle, comes along, and snatches it. Happens every day in college towns all over America. Okay, and most of us would say that what Jack did is definitely wrong. Definitely wrong. No question about it. Now what happens is when we begin to vary each of those dimensions that I was just describing, we still might say that what Jack did was wrong, but it's it's not going to be as clear, and it's maybe not going to seem as wrong. So, if we uh, if we if if we think of Jack's behavior as not being intentional, for example, he really didn't mean to take something that was not rightfully his. If he takes one piece of Jill's bicycle, uh, that doesn't seem as wrong as taking the bicycle. If Jill is and in that situation, you he takes one piece, and let's say many, many other people take all the other different pieces. So it's hard to say who exactly. That's who exactly right. Took her so bike. Jill loses her bicycle, but who stole the bicycle? Very hard to say. What if it's a causal relation where many people do things that have the effect of Jill losing her bicycle or not ever having a bicycle? We might think that Jill is unfortunate, but we may not think these other people who acted without that intentionality did anything wrong. 
what happens if they act in such a way that the effects are felt on the other side of the of the world, sort of beyond what we think of as our normal moral and political community? So give an example of that. Like I think you say if, if someone supports the underground bike trade and so going to a, a shop in Europe leads very indirectly to an underground bike-stealing market emerging in America, right? Exactly. We, we tend to think that it would be better if we weren't complicit in these activities, but we don't really think of ourselves as really being directly responsible for them. And the same thing happens if it's a temporal dimension rather than a, a spatial dimension. If, if, I, if we do something today that affects people in the, in, the, in the future, we might think, oh, it would be better if we didn't do that or something like that. But we don't think of ourselves as causing the harm or being directly responsible for the harm. So Jack might go to a bike shop and he might um, order a bicycle, which will result in Jill, who lives in a remote part of the world centuries in the future from ever having a bicycle unbeknownst to Jack, unintended by Jack. And that result to Jill would only occur not because Jack ordered the bicycle, but because millions of other people ordered the bicycle. That's just business as usual. Every day we make shopping decisions and we make choices and we do things that are going to have unintended effects on future people. We don't, And we don't know what they are. Uh, we think, we hope they don't have negative effects, but we don't think it's our job to think about the consequences of every decision we make for everyone in the world a thousand years in the future. So I, I want to dig into that idea of thinking about people in the future, because for me, this is one of the most challenging parts of it to, to think about. And if you really start to think about what it means to care for someone who lives a thousand years from now, a totally abstract person, which as you point out, we don't know what their life is going to look like, and, and we don't know what even they're going to derive meaning from. So how do you start thinking about that? I don't think there's a good way of, of thinking about that. I think we now really run up to a very difficult conceptual question to which there's not a clear answer. So let's try to make this concrete. So most of us probably think that the future that we want to leave people is a future that's very much like the world into which we're born into. So I want my children to have the experience of surfing in Torrey Pines. I want my children to have the possibility of being able to uh, hear the howl of the wolf in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota. These are experiences that I think are precious and part of a meaningful human life. But if we think about what life might really be like, for my descendants, when we go out more than one generation, two generations, three generations, four generations, it might look a little more like that movie WALL-E. You know, WALL-E is a world in which basically humanity is living on spaceships that, that circumvent the planet. The surface of the planet is kind of burned out. Um, everything is life, most life has been eliminated and so on. But the people living in those spaceships seem to be quite happy in the sense that, you know, they're having their life, doing things that are meaningful to them, and so on and so forth. Now, seen from where I am, I find this completely horrifying. But which is objectively better? Uh, my judgment that their lives are bad, or their judgments that their lives are not bad. Now, now the point I want to make from this is not some kind of 
you know, value subjectivism or nihilism or say, you know, we don't know how to think about the way we affect the future. The point, the conclusion that I want to draw from this is that our ability to think sensibly about the future, whether through economics or through our moral systems, just runs out very quickly. And we shouldn't really be in the business of trying to determine the ways of life of people hundreds or thousands of years in the future. We should leave that to them. And that's part of the reason we should shrink to the greatest extent possible from taking actions that are going to commit future generations to very particular ways of life that they won't have any choice about. So rather than saying we ought to do this rather than that because the benefits of doing the first thing are greater over a 500 year period, the question we should be asking is, well, what can we be pretty confident about with respect to the effects over a time horizon on which it's reasonable for us to think that will presumably, insofar as we can tell, not really foreclose so many future options for those who come after us. Let's discuss uh, considering climate change is clearly such a thorny issue to, to tackle from an ethical perspective, how some other theorists have approached it and the reason why you critique some of these approaches. So the first approach is to argue that contributing to climate change falls under a set of acts, a particular acts that we currently already recognize um, as being, as violating our sense of moral responsibility. Uh, so can you discuss that idea specifically uh, with reference to theorists who have argued that emitting carbon dioxide is a human rights abuse? Um, and then and we can talk about the second one after. Yeah, so this is another example where our machinery that we've developed, which has served us for many good purposes, just doesn't apply to a new, to, to a new set of issues. So some people, for example, have wanted to say, well, look, we're emitting all this carbon. This carbon changes climate. And this is going to affect the livelihoods of people all over the planet, particularly those who are the poorest. So people, for example, in Bangladesh who will suffer from sea level rise are, are, are going to lose their very habitation. And this, of course, will happen in small island states as well. There are other populations, say, for example, in parts of Africa, but in other parts of the world as well, who are going to lose food security because of changing weather patterns and its effects on crop yields and so on. So these theorists have wanted to say emitting carbon uh, involves us in human rights abuses. Well, you know, it's not so simple. Emitting carbon isn't like dropping anti-personnel weapons on a civilian population or mistreating prisoners or suppressing people's speech. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with emitting carbon. Somebody who builds a campfire or, or even turns the thermostat uh, in their home heating uh, system, I mean, they're not, there's nothing intrinsically wrong about that act. The damages result from many, 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 many people all over the world engaging in these same acts. And then how this act interacts in this incredibly complex system, which is first of all an extremely complex physical system, set of physical systems, name, namely the carbon cycle, and then how all of that interacts with human social vulnerabilities. So is it that it's not as intrinsically wrong 
as committing a human rights abuse if we know the direct effect it's having or just the relationship, the, the connection to harm is just not as direct? Yeah, the connection to harm is just not as direct. Here, here's, in a way, the simplest way of thinking about this. Suppose that humans did cause climate change, but all the effects of climate change happened in unpopulated parts of the world, say at sea, which didn't affect ecology, food supply, and so on. Now, we might think that that's still a bad thing to do because we might think it violates some ideas we have about interfering with nature. But we wouldn't think in any way that this was a human rights problem or, or, or anything of that sort. The fact that climate change, the, the fact that emitting carbon is going to damage tens of millions of people all over the world is as much a social and political fact about the way that we've organized the world as it is a fact about emitting carbon. The other proposal, which you also criticize, talks about extending our current moral conceptions, which is analogous uh, to Peter Singer's arguments uh, for, for animal liberation. So can you describe how, how that would work and your criticism of that idea? Yeah, so there, um, so, so one of the roles that philosophers like Peter Singer and others play in the world is to be moral revolutionaries. And what we think of as moral revolution can be a number of different things. So in the case of the arguments for animal rights and animal protection, for example, I don't think the revolution is occurring at the level of moral principle. Essentially what Singer is arguing is that, look, we all believe that causing needless suffering is bad, but we've had this moral blind spot about animals, either because we thought that, well, they don't really feel pain, and now we know better, or because we just looked away. We didn't actually want to think about the pain that animals were being, saw, were being caused. But, but once we look at animals, and we understand very clearly what is true, which is that many of our practices cause unnecessary suffering to animals, then they fall under the, under the norm that we already have, which is not to cause un unnecessary suffering. So in this case, the moral revolution is not a revolution of new principles. It's a revolution that involves seeing that animals, in this case, fall under principles that we already have. In the case of climate change, we need a new relationship to our moral norms and moral principles. The problem that we have is not with, with climate change is not that we don't understand that climate change is going to cause a vast amount of suffering. The problem that we have is trying to link these apparently innocent little acts that we engage in in everyday life with this enormous suffering that occurs very, very far downstream. And that requires us to have very different attitudes to what seem like small private acts that we each do as individuals. And we don't now have any moral norms that really inform our attitude towards those acts. So I want to talk about what that would mean to, to transform or revolutionize our moral norms. But first I want to ask if this is even something realistic to talk about. Is there any precedent in history where human beings have, have done such a thing? So... Um, 
This is a tricky question because the answer is, I think, both no and yes. So the no part of the of the question is, I don't fundamentally think that um, the evolution and development of moral norms can ever be much of a vanguard to things that are happening in society. So in other words, some people have this idea that moral philosophers are sort of like, you know, religious prophets in the Hebrew Bible or something, that enough Jeremiads can sort of, you know, bring the faithful into the flock and turn us away from the sins of our ways. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I can sit in a bar with a napkin and I can design what I think is the optimal moral system and I can hand it to the Secretary General of the United Nations who might agree who's sitting with me at the bar and nothing is going to happen because because what morality is for us is so deeply entrenched in our psychologies and attitudes we're back to the rational animal thing that simply seeing that our prevailing moral norms are dysfunctional and it would be better to have others isn't going to be enough to really bring about that change. So actual moral change involves an ongoing conversation, I think, between visionary thinking, the creation and revision of societal incentive structures, which puts us immediately in the domain of politics, and increasing knowledge about uh, the effects of our actions on the world. So it's a it's a very complicated, continuous conversation we're all having with each other. I think about how moral change happens, and it's not something that can sort of just be led by somebody inventing some new moral norms. Now, having said that, amazing moral revolutions have occurred in in history, and to me, the most stunning one um, is in recent history is the British abolition of the Atlantic slave trade. The British controlled the Atlantic slave trade. They were the leading power uh, when it came to re removing slaves from Africa to the New World and to other regions of the world. This amounted to about 4% of their GDP. The industry was that, was that large. And yet they abolished the slave trade and they then imposed their norm that the slave trade should not happen on the rest of the world and for some years after that, about 2,000 British sailors per year were killed trying to impose this new British norm on the other slaving nations of the world. Now, you might say that's, you know, if you tried to explain this in terms of, back to economics, rational self-interest models, it really doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you give up your privileged position in, a, in the global economy in this way? Um, and then, moreover, bear all these costs trying to impose your newfound values on someone else. Well, the answer is really because moral norms had changed at home. And there was this kind of complicated conversation that I was describing between people's changing moral consciousness, what they were willing to accept, what they weren't willing to accept, changes in British politics, changes in the way people were thinking about the economy of the future, and so on. And out of that cauldron of very confused, sometimes violent, often politically disruptive conversation came the British abolition of the slave trade. That's the sort of thing that I believe will inevitably happen with, with carbon. It's not going to happen because, um, you know, because I write a book. Um, it's, it's not going to happen because Mil Bill McKibben gives a speech. 
these are it's not going to happen for that matter because Exxon has decided they're going to be on the side of the angels it's not going to happen because um, we elect a president who's not a climate change denier it's going to happen because of all of these things working together that's what really brings about change so what would expanding our ethical imagination look like to encompass some of these really challenging issues that that climate change poses to our current ethical imagination? You know, I think it's extremely difficult to say. And the, the, so the first thing I'm going to say is really going to sound like a like a cop out. And then after copping out, I'll try to do some speculation. But any time that we sit on the edge of a really systematic change of norms, it's extremely difficult to glimpse the future. And what glimpses of the future we have often look completely unacceptable. So to just give you two examples of this, um, after Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which only applied to slaves in the South anyway, and then only after the war did we get the amendments to the Constitution that brought former slaves into full citizenship, the objections to this that were made often by many people were, well, we understand this is an untenable situation and something has to be done and so on, but what does it mean to grant full citizenship to these African slaves? Does that mean that they will be intermarrying with white people and living next to white people and, um, and be going to schools with white people? Now, a lot of people who supported the abolition of slavery said, no, no, it doesn't mean that at all. No, we can't envision that. I mean, they remained segregationists, for example, because they couldn't really envision and embrace the logic of where this change would, leave, would lead. It just seemed too, too radical and too strange. Something like that, I think, has happened with the gay marriage debate, for example. Um, now, I think, mostly in America, uh, marriage equality is pretty well accepted, but arguments were raised by opponents of marriage equality that this might lead to polygamy, for example, uh, or this, you know, some form of group marriage, or this might lead to a world in which you might have humans marrying, um, you know, sort of robots at some at, at, at some point in the future. And I think the answer, you know, the, the right response to this is, yeah, well, it actually may, that once you change the concept of marriage, so that it's not that it isn't essentially one man and one woman, then it really isn't clear where the borders are, and the borders are to be negotiated and fought out, and to respond to other f forms of social change. And the fact that you don't know where this will all lead is not a reason to try to stop the bigotry and the harms that are being created by the present practice. And I think something like that is true of the kind of morality that we're going to need in response to climate change and, for that matter, to the Anthropocene, more broadly construed. We don't really know where that's going to lead. It's probably going to lead uh, to a more collectivist morality, for example. So, um, so in the kinds of societies that we've lived in for the last three or four centuries, we've thought that there was a very deep and fundamental distinction between public behavior and private behavior. And part of what is being exposed by climate change is that a lot of our actions that we've thought of as being private actions 
actually have profound public effects when they're coupled with other people's private actions. So we're probably going to evolve a morality which basically says things like, well, choosing to drive an SUV, you know, that isn't just something that's up to you. You know, that's something about whether that action is permissible is going to sort of depend on what our policies about people driving SUVs are generally. So that's one place that's going to change. It has to do with this boundary between the public and private and indeed the very existence of it. But what does that mean for morality in the future? Very hard to see from here. But you definitely think that the ethical imagination that we require to effectively deal with this problem has to develop. It's not yet inherent or has not yet been inherent to any culture that has already existed. Exactly. So I want to push back against that for for a second or just dig into that a bit further and go back to your idea of common sense morality, which you argue that even though uh, you're talking about it specifically in the context of Western industrialized nations, as a species, we all clearly share a common ancestor, and a lot of the features of common sense morality evolved on the plains of East Africa in these low-population, low-density societies. So what I want to ask you is, do you think that even though you acknowledge that common sense morality has huge variation in the West, uh, let alone all the many different cultures that exist currently and, and have existed previously, could all the features have perhaps already uh, been present or are present in other, in other cultures outside of our own? So I think that's a really good point. So, um, so let me first reframe the point I think that you're really making, which is that one of the wonderful things about both biological and cultural evolution is that it's a natural laboratory for experimentation. So, so what we know about all of these systems is that they produce all kinds of variation. And much of that variation doesn't take because it doesn't fall onto sort of a fertile environment that's going to sort of reinforce the survival of this particular trait, whether it's a biological trait or whether it's a cultural trait. But because we know that biology and culture are both fountains of this kind of variation, this does give us the makings for some innovation that we might need when either biological or physical and cultural conditions might change. So another way of putting the question now to where the rubber hits the road with, I think, where you were going with this, is mightn't it be the case that the kind of morality that we will need in the future is one that's already present or been tried out in the past? And the answer to that is maybe. Um, But the way forward, well, recapturing what can be identified in the past can be part of a way forward, but it's really not going to be most of the way forward because because the kinds of moral norms that we're going to need in the Anthropocene are going to have to fundamentally survive and thrive because of the contributions that they're making and enabling to life in the Anthropocene. Now, it can help to say, well, you know, people tried that before. Um, But that's not always an argument that can go both ways. They tried it and it didn't work. It got extinguished. It wasn't on the winning side of of history at that that point. Um, But then we can also argue, well, the times were not quite yet right for that. But 
morality is still in this way. It's something we inherit, both in our biology and in our culture, but it's something that's fundamentally present and future-oriented uh, in terms of, um, of, of where it's going to go, in my opinion. All right, I'd like to get your thought on another idea, idea I've been toying with, and maybe similarly you can, you can help me articulate it m- more clearly. So I, I feel like I've, I'm seeing these two different, broadly different ethics emerging um, with regards to the environment. And these might be a, a false dichotomy that I'm creating, but I see certain writers like Paul Kingsnorth specifically talking about it. So one is an ethic that's popular among a lot of people right now, which is an ethic that we need to become increasingly connected to specific places. So it's kind of a shrinking down and and maybe a bit of a nostalgic look about what we've lost in terms of our connection to place and what we do need to do to reclaim that. The other ethic seems to be about embracing this much more globalized world and talking about a whole new set of morals and ethics that can that need to guide us forward to start thinking about ourselves as this sort of one world culture where we're we're all connected and our sense of responsibility to someone in our own town is no gre- less or greater than someone in Madagascar that we've never met and will never meet. So how would you start to think about these these two different ethics one a more globalized kind, one of a more place-based kind in reference to other ideas you're exploring about the Anthropocene. So I think what you say is exactly right, and it's of profound importance, and it's actually a bifurcation that pre, in, in the environmental movement that pre-exists the concern for climate change. So if you, if you really go back to the kind of recent origins of environmentalism, and now I'm really thinking sort of the early 1960s, something like that, there have always been these two tendencies. So one tendency, kind of a pre-modern tendency, you can see, for example, in Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, where the world before pesticides, before this intrusion of technology, was a better and more blessed world. You see it in the writings of people like Wendell Berry, for example. You see it in Thoreau. You see this contemplation of, of a, an appreciation of an earlier time in which people lived a life that was more in tune with nature. But also in the 1960s, you kind of see this the emergence of a kind of high-tech environmentalism. Kenneth Boulding, the economist, used introduced the metaphor, which maybe he first got from Buckminster Fuller, I'm not sure, the other way around, of spaceship Earth, and the idea that we should think of the planet as a, as a kind of small spaceship that's floating through the void of, you know, of the universe, and we need to be as absolutely efficient as possible. We need to think of ourselves as a single system, we have to have zero waste in this system. We, there's no real place in thinking in that kind of thinking for you know, inequality on the spaceship or who sits where on the spaceship or anything like that. So the second form of environmentalism is kind of a postmodern environmentalism. It's sort of looking to the technology of the future is really sort of providing the solutions. So we've had that bifurcation in the environmental movement, I think, for a long time. Now what climate change and more broadly global change science, earth system science, the kind of ability to see the earth from space and the ability to do remote sensing and to begin to understand the planet as a system, a system with a deep history and so on, has really brought out for us 
is that we have this fundamental challenge in connecting these two perspectives. And this challenge is both an epistemological challenge and it's a moral psychological challenge. It's epistemological in the sense that one of the reasons why we've been so bad, I think, in convincing people of the reality and urgency of climate change is because we've essentially been waving uh, a bunch of computer output in front of people and we've been talking in terms of abstractions that don't mean much to people like Earth's mean surface temperature and we don't even have the decency to talk to Americans in terms of Fahrenheit. We insist on maintaining centigrade because that's the way we scientists talk about these about these matters. So so there's a very difficult epistemological problem in trying to figure out how these global constructs relate to what I'm going to do as a as a wheat farmer in Kansas or what this even means to me as somebody who wants to raise my child with an appreciation for the mountains in Colorado. I mean, how, how do they fit together? The moral psychological challenge arises because not even scientists can really be motivated to act on climate change by looking at general circulation models because scientists are people too. And what motivates all of us, go, you know, we're all these savanna apes in this very new environment. And what motivates all of us is this connection to place, this love of place, this appreciation of our embeddedness in the, in the world and the delights that, it produ that, that is produced by that. So I think the really fundamental challenge of the environmental movement, but also for us as individuals who want to protect environmental values is really to try to figure out how these two things connect to each other, how the relationship to place can be used to motivate an appreciation of the knowledge that more abstract and general systems of thought are producing in us and an appreciation on the other side of why we need that connection to place. And the discussion has not generally been very good about this because there's often been this tendency on the part of people who tend to think in an earth systems way to think of people who have a connection to place as being sort of a kind of nostalgic, not particularly scientifically oriented tribe, instead of seeing that they themselves really are members of the same tribe. And then for people who are concerned about a sense of place and about local environments and regional environments, there's been a tendency to see Earth system approaches as wanting to sort of erase inequality and disempowerment and, and difference. So it's the, it's the rapprochement between these different ways of knowing that must complement each other that is a really fundamental challenge right now. Let's talk a little bit about what it's going to mean to live in the Anthropocene and live with climate change. You write that the Anthropocene presents novel challenges for living a meaningful life. What do you mean by that? So we tend to take some of the things that are most meaningful in our lives for granted. And one example of that that I think maybe that eventually becomes most accessible to everyone, although young people often don't particularly like to hear this example, uh, has to do with parents. Um, 
one of the most profound disorienting losses that any almost any person experiences in life is the death of their last and second parent and this can be profound and disorienting even if they're not close to their parents even if they think uh, of themselves as sort of rebellious and people of their own creation and so on what happens often to people when the second parent parent dies the last parent dies is a kind of sense of disorientation in the world and even sometimes a kind of sense of of of, of meaninglessness i mean there's a there's a kind of imagined authority figure an imagined pole of orientation that has now been lost and i think nature functions very much that way for us that we tend we 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 tend to not notice the role that nature plays in our lives because we see it like in the way that we see our parents as something that's sort of always there and always going to be there and always something to kind of unconsciously orient around but yet when nature is transformed before our eyes i mean we often this is often an extremely upsetting experience for people and this is part i think of what explains why what really get people going often on environmental issues are nimby issues right not in my backyard issues i mean even when we understand that it's actually maybe better for the community that the highway actually go through that stand of trees where i used to play when i was a kid and where i first kind of learned about bugs and got developed my interest in nature even if i think that i can understand why yeah it's probably better to put the highway there it can still be a profoundly disorienting experience for us and what the anthropocene is doing is it's disrupting those connections for almost everyone and it's disrupting them at an enormously rapid rate of change and that i think is what is going to be really difficult increasingly for people to sort of figure out who they are and how they how how, how they locate meaning in their lives now i should say that i'm not describing universal laws of nature here i mean that not everyone is wired up the same and some people do find substitutes i mean i i find it really interesting for example so 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 i don't mean this is a political point but i'm going to say something about um the current occupant of the white house and i don't particularly mean to say this as a um as a criticism but as an observation is that he seems to be someone whose orientation to nature is is almost completely exhausted by his relationship to golf courses and it seems to be that these highly artificialized environments in a way quite characteristic of the anthropocene provide him with the kind of substitute orientation that he needs and in that sense he he may be a figure of the future it may be that we will evolve to a sense of human identity where artificial places reconstructed places highly managed places will work for us as replacements but for most of us that if it were to happen at all is very far off in the future and it's going to be a very very rocky period over the next century 
well so much that if given individuals and nations and communities their sense of identity becomes disrupted. Well, let's talk about what would be wrong about that idea of, of let's say, Donald Trump representing the, the future of, of morality in terms of what it means to relate to nature. So in your book, Love and the Anthropocene, which you co-wrote with Bonnie Nadzim, is, is that my name? Bonnie Nadzim, excuse me. You present these scenarios in the future about how humans are going to find meaning and love uh, in these environments that in a lot of ways seem similar but very different from our own. Do you see those versions of love that you represent to be any more impoverished than the, than the current ways we find love and meaning now? So I see them as impoverished. That's a different question than do I believe from an objective or impartial point of view that they are impoverished relative to how I find sources of love and meaning. It's the nature of change that I will always be judging and assessing and evaluating the world from where I personally am embedded in the world. And that's going to be true of each of us. The, but your question brings out what I think is really perhaps the most important point about really all of my work, um, which is this. In both Reason in a Dark Time and in Love in the Anthropocene, I'm not so much wanting to make judgments for other people about the future and about where we're headed and where even where we are now, so much as I'm really acting, I think, in the spirit of the Enlightenment, that we are blundering into a future and we're doing this in ignorance, in self-deception, in denial, without relying on our best ways of understanding the world. And then we claim surprise at what we've lost or where we are at the road that we've taken. What I want more than anything is for us to face the realities of the world that we're creating. So for those that don't want to shirk responsibility and do want to take individual action to prevent climate change, one wormhole that it's very easy to go down, which you, which you highly caution against, is this idea that what I do doesn't matter, which on the surface as a fact seems to be true because of the nature of climate change, how it is this, this action that uh, is done by billions of people all complicit in a system that no one really knows how it started or is controlling where, where it's going. But you really caution against this idea of saying it doesn't matter what I do. So can you talk about philosophically, from a philosophical angle, why you think it does matter what people do? So the fundamental paradox of the Anthropocene is that humanity collectively has never been more powerful, yet individuals arguably have never felt so powerless. So if we're in any way to get a grip on the world that the Anthropocene is creating, that paradox is going to have to be resolved in some way. And the only way of resolving that paradox is through a recovery of a sense of individual agency.
and responsibility. So how do we do that? How is it that I can overcome this feeling that what I do doesn't doesn't matter and begin to understand um, my role in this whole crazy cosmic drama? Well, I can't attach my sense of agency to the outcome. I, I, I can't say, well, I'm going to go demonstrate I'm going to go to the People's Climate March, and then if Donald Trump doesn't change his policy, I will have failed. Because it's true. I am not in a position to be decisive over U.S. government policy with respect to climate change. What I am in a position to be decisive over fundamentally is the relationship between myself and my values. What I can do is act in accordance with my own values, where that means something both in terms of political action and collective action, but also means something in terms of decisions that I make about what to eat, how to get around in the world, how to keep myself warm in winter. Those are the things that will recover in me a sense of agency, which will allow me to assess my own life about whether I've lived up to my obligations. These are things that I can measure myself against because these are obligations that I freely take on that I can make a difference with respect to. I can't hinge the meaning of my life to the ultimate success of the Green Revolution because that I have no power over ultimately and decisively. In that sense, we're in the same situation as a John Brown who was committed to the end of slavery, for example, and died even before the beginning of the, before even the Civil War started, which arguably his acts did something to provoke. What John Brown had power over is, is what he was going to do in terms of his own convictions and how he was going to hitch his own life to his own convictions and to act in a way that was responsible to them. That's what gave him a meaningful life, not how the whole story turned out over which he had no control whatsoever, but it was because he was a man who acted on the basis of values that he freely chose that make him someone who was important in our history. So individual action is closely tied to individual meaning. Yes, that's right. Where individual action and individual meaning are also themselves closely tied with how we function in the broader societal context. Because one thing Aristotle had right was that we are social animals. Maybe not so rational, but certainly social. So what it is for us to have values and what it is for us to act isn't just to live in a cabin in Montana and, and, and live on turnips. It's also about the way that we interact with other people and with the collective political structures in which we live. Well, Del Jamison, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you, Noah. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk to you. Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies with production help from the Yale Broadcast Center. You can subscribe to Habitations in the iTunes Store, on SoundCloud, or through the Yale iTunes U channel. And for more information about Habitations and about Sage Magazine, check out sagemagazine.org. And thanks for listening.